Today, as we come to the end of the Gospel of John, um, you can turn then to the end of the Gospel of John, and we will be reading the last six verses or so. I will confess that as I started and decided to preach the book of John, I was a little intimidated. I've, I've read it so many times, I worried at, at parts of it that I wouldn't have enough to say, which is, I know now, kind of a joke for most of you who have sat through that. Uh, I was worried that I would mishandle it. I was worried that I would, I would explain points and, and good things that John has to say poorly to you. No doubt some of that is true. But as I, I thought through it this week, I realized that that was foolhardy on two accounts. One, thinking that I was intimidated by this book in particular means that I'm not intimidated by other books of Scripture, which is probably the wrong attitude to have. I am insufficient to handle any book of Scripture, especially to stand here and to preach it to God's people, thinking that I and I alone will be all that you need for it. And because of that, I was then also reprimanded in my worries that I would be inadequate at this book because it is the Spirit of God who takes the truth of God and delivers it to the people of God. And so, on both accounts, I was wrong. Today, we finish then the book of John, and I assume then because of the work of the Spirit, it has been useful to his people, it has been uplifting to his glory. This is my 77th sermon, which given that John is so highly symbolic, it fits very nicely. It would be my 78th, but Alec preached for me once, so thanks be to God for Alec, and it makes a very nice round number for me. 77, two sevens, the essence of perfection is not what you're going to get today, but we can, we can, we can hope. So let us then turn to these final six verses and see what the Lord has for us this morning. And let's begin reading in verse 20 of John chapter 21. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had been reading at the table close to him and had said, or reclining, excuse me, at table close to him and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not, say that, did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things, who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did, were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. This is the infallible and errant and perfect word of our God. Before we get into the meat of the sermon, let's just kind of track with the, the remainder of the story from Jesus and Peter as Jesus reestablished Peter those three times. Peter is then leaving as Jesus has called him to follow him and he looks over his shoulder and he notices that John is there and he asks about John. We are likely, I think, to realize Jesus uh, asking Peter to follow him was not necessarily asking John to follow him. Maybe John was just around anyways, but Peter asks about him. Peter is very close to John in every gospel. We read of that in this gospel especially, not only running to the tomb together, but in the events leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus being very close to one another. Peter probably wants to know if John is to suffer the same fate as he is. Jesus lightly reprimands him. What does it matter to you? If Jesus is going to speak to Peter and give Peter 
instruction. That instruction is indeed for Peter. Now, for John's gospel, this becomes important. Written as late as this is sometime in the late 90s, middle to late 90s probably, um, what we have then is John sort of clearing the ground. People, as John got older, given the word was spread that John wasn't going to die before the Lord returned, as John got older, people are like, man, this guy's going to kick the bucket any second now, so we know the Lord's going to return. And so John's saying, well, no, that's not what Jesus said. He said, if I want him to live until I return, then what is it to you? In other words, what John's trying to do is, even if I die, you are not to fret over this. This is not to be something that that beats down your faith. For us, there is a really good point here, too, and it's kind of a chief point in hermeneutics. When we read Scripture, how are we to read Scripture? The Word of God is spoken to us, and it is for us. It is not primarily for your spouse. It is not primarily for your children. It is not primarily for your parents. It is not primarily for your neighbor. It is not primarily for your enemies. It is for you. So that when you read that you ought to honor your father and mother, that is first and foremost for you to honor them, not for you to go to your children and remind them of how they are to honor them, although that's perfectly legitimate. Just make sure you remind yourself first. Okay. So we are always to remember that sort of idea as we go into, and especially important as we summarize the book of John today. And we are going to summarize the entire book of John. We're going to do this basically through these two verses. Verse 24 John says very clearly, this is the disciple, the one who reclined on Jesus, the one who is the apostle John. He wrote these things. It is him who wrote these things. The question is, what are these things? Well, these things is the entirety of the book of John, and that is what we're going to try and summarize. And we find that this is a legitimate exercise because John himself makes it clear, I needed to summarize. He says, if everything that Jesus did were written down, all of the books in the world couldn't cover it. Because John has written a gospel, he has clearly summarized what Jesus taught, who Jesus was, and other things of the matter. So, we are going to do the same today. We are going to try to summarize the entirety of the book of John in little less than an hour and a half. That was was a joke. We're, hope, we're hoping for better things, friends. We're hoping for better things. Given the fact that I could just read the Gospel of John to you in less time than that, we're hoping for better things. So, uh, The first thing we want to cover in this book is the enemies of Jesus. Who are Jesus' enemies? Now, in John's world, certainly there were plenty of enemies of the cross. There were people who were pagan, who believed in many gods, who believed in odd gods, who, who were created themselves, and who, people who became God. And so, because these pagans refused to worship the one true and living God, those were plenty and easy to find. They were enemies of the cross as well, and they are therefore enemies of Jesus as well. But that doesn't seem to be quite what John is getting at with the enemies that he portrays in his book. The question is more, more succinctly put. Why would a people who have the Old Testament, why would a people who were frankly and honestly looking for the Christ, wanting the Messiah to come, miss him so badly? Why did they reject him? John even opens his gospel with a a clear note that this is indeed a problem. In verse 11 of the opening chapter, he talks about Jesus and he says, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Why did the Jews miss it so badly? What, What are parts and parcel of of being the Jewish leadership here that make them miss it so badly. 
what we're going to do is summarize that. We're not going to catch every person, and not every person is going to fit into these categories, but we can sort of summarize what we learn from John's gospel. First, there are plenty of people who pretend to believe. They seem like they believe, they make like they'll believe, but they don't truly believe believe. In John 2, 23 and 24, Jesus, having done many miracles and performed good signs at the first Passover that we read of in the book of John, John tells us this. When he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. That word entrust is the same word for belief that they believed. They entrusted themselves to him, but Jesus knew who they were. And he didn't entrust himself to them. That is, they had signs of belief. They might have even thought that they believed, but they didn't truly believe. Same thing in John 6, 66. After John has Jesus say many, many difficult things about eating my body and drinking my blood. In verse 66 of that chapter, after many of his disciples heard this, they turned back and no longer walked with him. For a good long time, they seemed like they believed, but they didn't truly believe. In John 6.15, these same people seem like they believe. Having heard about this, perceiving, or having, having received the bread and the fish as Jesus multiplied them and provided that miracle, they then were about to come and take Jesus by force. They seemed like they believed, but they wouldn't believe for long. In John 12, verses 42 and 43, we read this. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. These are people who seem to believe. They might say the right things, but there is no true belief. One of the reasons why they seem to believe is because they are incredibly self-assured. They are so self-assured. They know what they believe. They know what is true. And no amount of evidence is ever going to change their mind. Jesus has just stated that the Father and I are one and they pick up stones to stone him. And so Jesus asked the question that rings throughout the early part of the Gospel of John. I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? If you don't like my words, look at the works Look at the things that I'm doing and make sense of them. But they can't make sense of them because they know, they know that it can't be true. In John 5, 36, Jesus says, The testimony that I have is greater than that of John the Baptist. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Those who oppose Jesus are marked everywhere by a great skepticism. Nothing's ever enough. In John 9.18, when the man is born blind, receives his sight back, the Jews still did not believe that he had been born blind and received his sight. They've got to question him time and time and time again. And even when he gives faithful answers to the one who has cleaned him, to the one who has made him see again, they say this, you were born in utter sin. And you would teach us? We're not going to be taught by you. We're not going to be taught by the signs and the miracles that have been done to you. We know what the truth is. John 7, 45 and 48 sort of nails them down. They had sent officers to arrest Jesus 
at the festival. The officers come back empty-handed. The authorities look at them and say, come on, man, what, what's going on? Why didn't you arrest him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. To them, it was like arresting a prophet. And even they had a good enough sense not to arrest a prophet. No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? Unless we believe it, it is not possibly true. If we don't believe it and you believe it, you must be deceived because we can't possibly be wrong. They are unwilling to have their minds changed by the facts that are present before them. And they're even unwilling to have their minds changed by God's word. Not only are they self-assured, but they continually and utterly misunderstand Scripture. John 5.39, Jesus says, You search the Scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. He says, There's a great big cartoonish neon sign over my head that say the Scriptures point here. And you can't get it. This isn't a minor plot point. You have missed the entire thing. You don't get any of it right. You've got it all wrong. You think that you have eternal life there, but they're pointing at me, and if you miss me, you miss all of it. All of John 8 points in this direction. These Jews misunderstand their relationship to Abraham. They frankly misunderstand Abraham himself. The pinnacle of this comes in chapter 8, verse 33, where Jesus says, Know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they say, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. As they then have to turn around and pay a shekel tax to Rome because Rome makes them. It's like the book of Exodus just up and disappeared. We've never been enslaved to anyone. No matter how you parse that, that cannot possibly be true. They misunderstand Scripture. They mishandle Scripture. And therefore, they are liars. They refuse to adhere to the truth that confronts them, whether it's real-time factual evidence occurring before their eyes or it's Scripture themselves. And because they mishandle Scripture, they must lie about who God is, they must lie about who Christ is, and ultimately they must even lie about who they are. John 8, verse 44. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Later on in that same chapter in verses 54 to 56, Jesus answered them, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is the Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. And if I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. They are liars. They are self-assured. They are never corrected, either by the works of Jesus or by Scripture itself. Because they continually mishandle Scripture, they lie about God, they lie about themselves, they lie about Christ. They do this ultimately because they seek the glory of the world. John 5, 44. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from only God? 
in John 11, Jesus, having raised Lazarus from the dead, is getting increased attention. People are starting to hear about him. The miracle was hard to keep down. Jesus literally just raised someone from the dead, and their response is not, Good golly, Miss Molly. He raised somebody from the dead. Maybe we ought to listen to the man. The response is rather, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans are going to come and take away our place and our nation. Their concern is not that Jesus literally just raised a guy from the dead. Their concern is, if he continues to raise people from the dead, the Romans are going to come and crush us. And what's going to happen to our great nation? John 12, 42 again. Sort of signals them out. They love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. They love the glory of the world. And therefore, loving the glory of the world, they have to fight with the weapons of the world. So they use violence to do everything that they can do to maintain their glory. They trust, as the psalmist would say, in chariots and horses. In John 11.50, the prophet Gamaliel, prophet not of his own accord, high priest that year says this. They're wringing their hands over this problem of what to do with Jesus. Gamaliel says, you don't understand that it's better for you that if one man should die for the people so the whole nation would not perish. Now, in John's world, that is a double entendre because it has a clear meaning for Jesus that is good and right and true. We'll get back to that. For Gamaliel, it means this. Listen, it doesn't matter if Jesus is guilty or not. It doesn't matter if he is as innocent as the driven snow. It is better that one injustice, a small injustice, be done to him. It is better for us to crush him than it is for our entire nation to be taken away by the Romans. They use violence because all they have in the world is the glory of the world. This pops up again and again and again in the trial of Jesus. They clearly want to crucify him. They clearly want to kill him because that is the only resort they have. They don't know what to do with him. And so they lash out in violence. Jesus at his trial is asking them, listen, I taught openly all the time. Now you arrest me and bring me in to the high priest to ask me about my disciples and about what I teach. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, is that how you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, listen, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Jesus is drawing attention to the fact this is all a sham. This is an absolute sham. You guys are only doing the thing that you know how to do, and that is act out in violence. You you only want to crucify me. It doesn't matter what I say. Later on in that same chapter, chapter 18, verse 31, Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. He said, You take him, don't try him, We just need him put to death, if you would kindly do that for us. They use violence 
to maintain the glory of the world because the glory of the world is all they've got because they don't believe in the kingdom of God because they mishandle scripture continually because they won't listen to scripture or to the work of God that is in front of them and therefore and ultimately God is nothing more than a prop. He is something nice to talk about. But when push comes to shove and it eventually does because they have to use violence the end result is we have no king but Caesar. So to summarize, the enemies of Jesus in John's gospel seem to believe. They are very, very sure of themselves, and they are never repentant because they are never wrong. They are not led by scripture, but they continually mishandle it. Therefore, they lie. They lie about God. They lie about Jesus. They lie about the world. They lie about his people. They only truly care about the things of this world. And they will gladly use violence to keep their kingdom which, make no doubt, they think is great, in place. And when all is said or done, they're willing to toss aside the commands of God and their own confession when their worldly things are threatened because they think that they might be cheapened or they might be wronged. Now, as far as applying this to the world in which we live and our current situation, I'll leave that for you. Certainly you are people of the Spirit. And you can look at the world around you and see people precisely like this. Let's go on to better things. Who are the people of Jesus? Who are Jesus' people? Obviously our first lesson is that our Bibles have not been given to us so that we can find others. The Bible has been given to us for our sake. So what do we make of Jesus' people in John? Well, first... The most important lesson is that while we might identify the enemies of the gospel in no way, shape, or form, are we to feel proud or arrogant toward them. We are the work of Jesus, and only the work of Jesus. We are his creation and his handiwork. John 3, 3 through 5, Jesus answered Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. No one is born of their own volition. No one is born of their own desires. It happens to them. This is the precise meaning of not only when he says the water and the Spirit, which is a reference back to Ezekiel 37 and the valley of dry bones coming together after the prophecy of Ezekiel in Ezekiel 36, But even the image that Jesus uses of being born again implies strongly that this is not a work of you. It's not your doing. You didn't look at the gospel and say, I don't understand why people don't get this. This is so blatantly obvious. I think that I will believe. It is a work of God having a miracle in your heart and life to bring you back to life again. It is wholly a work of God. In John 10 These people look at Jesus and say, hey, tell us plainly if you are the Christ. And Jesus says this to them in John 10, 25 and 26. I told you, and you don't believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe. Why? Because you are not of my sheep. Because you're not mine. Because I haven't called you. I don't call you by name. John 1 makes this abundantly clear. Verses 12 and 13. 
to all who did receive Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood. Your connection to Abraham is meaningless. He gave you the power not because of blood, nor because of the will of the flesh. You didn't sit there and think, I want to believe. It's not because you wanted it that it happened. Not because of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. It is all the work of God. So, we have no reason to be proud before our God. We are his work. And that means then we are his sheep. Last week, the threefold repetition for Peter, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, make it clear that we as people are the sheep of Jesus Christ. We exist for his glory and for his use. If he wants to look at Peter and say, Peter, when you're old, you're going to be dragged away and you're going to die in a way that you don't want to die. It's Jesus' right to do that. Peter is his sheep. In John 10, the famous passage about the shepherd, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. We are his work and we are his sheep. We belong to him and we are used for his good, which makes the next bit all the more important. It's that we are his friends and we are his siblings. He can... He can do what he wants to with us. He has purchased us by his blood. He can use us in any way for his glory that he sees fit. And at the same time, he says, no, but I I will call you my friends. John, again, 1.12 says, to those who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. Not simply to be called children of God, not to think they're children of God, but to literally be the children of God. John 15, Jesus says this, well, You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants or slaves. I don't call you that because the servant doesn't know what his master is doing. But I call you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. In John 20, 17, Jesus reaffirms that we are his siblings. He says, I will go and ascend to my father and to your father, to my God and to your God. We are friends and siblings with Jesus' people and therefore with one another. And therefore, we are unified in him. In John 17, Jesus says, I not only ask for these, the disciples and apostles who are with him at that last day. I do not only ask for these, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. All of the people of every tribe and every tongue and every nation, not of the current time, but of all time, everyone who is redeemed is unified in him, not by a shared political reality, Because we haven't shared the political reality with everyone. Even if we are unified in our political reality, you do not share that with almost anyone else that's been redeemed throughout all time. It's not in our political reality or outlook. It's not in our skin color. It's not in the nature or the timing of our birth. But in Christ. John 13, 34 and 35. We are to be in loving fellowship because we're united in him we are to be in fellowship with one another john 13 is a brilliant passage in this jesus does this incredibly belittling task of washing the disciples feet 
And not only does he wash the 11 disciples who love him and cherish him, but he washes the feet of one whom he already knows is going to betray him. He washes the feet of his enemies, looks then at his people, and he says this in verses 12 through 14. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for I am. If I, then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. How can Christians not exist in loving fellowship, serve one another, when Jesus was willing to do the, one of the most belittling tasks that would ever come to a Jewish man in the first century? Is there anything that we could possibly think we are too good of as a way to serve our fellow brothers or sisters? John 13 finishes this off in verses 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We are his people made by his hand. We are friends and siblings unified in him as a family. Therefore, we serve one another, and by that service, we let everyone know that Jesus is the Christ. We are his witnesses to the world. In John 4, 38, after saying the field is white for the harvest, Jesus says, I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you enter into their labor. Even as Jesus is ending his time with his disciples in John 20, he says to them again, In 21 and 22, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even I am sending you. Who then are the people of God? They are his work. They are his sheep. They are his friends. They are unified together in him alone to bring glory to him alone. We are the people of Jesus. That is how we are identified. But that obviously asks the question, the most important question that we can ask, who is Jesus Who is Jesus? Well, first, he is God incarnate. He is God in human flesh. Of all of the Gospels that we have, there is none that is nearly as emphatic as John on this point. He begins his Gospel this way, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, unless you're thinking, okay, well, he can be in the beginning with God. Maybe this was some sort of beautifully powerful creature that was atemporal, he didn't exist in time, and therefore we can talk about creation this way. So maybe he was created before time. And if you're a Jehovah's Witness, that's exactly what you think. Apparently they don't read verse 3, though, because John is super emphatic on this fact. The Word was not created. He couldn't be created. All things were made through him, he says. Maybe you think, well, obviously, he's accepting himself. And so John says, all things were made through him, and without him, not anything was made that was made. It's really hard to escape that. You can't wiggle too much. The Word wasn't created. He was with God, and he was God. This receives this beautiful end of the Gospel of John, perfectly balances this out as Thomas, seeing the physical Jesus stand before him, resurrected in glory, says, My Lord and my God. Jesus is God incarnate. God cares about us. He will sacrifice his own life for us. He takes on our problems. When he knows that his people cannot come to him, 
lost in sin and lost in darkness, our God comes to us. He came to his own. Even though his own people didn't receive him, he came to them. He is God incarnate. But Jesus is also God's son. John is incredibly emphatic on this point as well. Famous passage of John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. John 5.17, Jesus answers them when they question him, Why do you heal on a Sabbath? He says, Hey, my father is working until now, and I work until now. This isn't like fathers and sons exist today. My son is in this room. Many of you have children of your own. You know that there's a difference between a father and a son. Most of that is temporal. I'm like, I don't know, maybe 10, 15 years older than my son. By looks, I'm a little bit older than reality. We have this sort of temporal progression when we have sons because we're temporal creatures, but that's not what the Bible means when he calls Jesus, when he calls the son, the second person of the Trinity, the son. It doesn't mean chronology. It simply means that he comes from the father. What that means is simply that God communicates perfectly his essence or his nature to the Son. Before time began, as Athanasius would like to say, there was never a time when the Son was not. We call this eternal generation. The Father always generates the Son. He always gives to the Son. He always communicates to the Son. This is why it is ultimately the Son who is sent for our redemption. The Son who goes because he is always the one who comes from the Father. And therefore there is distinction He is the Son, and He is not the Father. They are not the same. This is witnessed to by His own work, that the Son is indeed God on high. The miracles that occur in the book of John, seven of them, turning water into wine, He heals the official Son, He heals the lame man, He feeds the 5,000, He walks on water, He heals the man born blind, He raises Lazarus from the dead. Every single one of those are not unexpected in the realm of the Bible. Elijah and Elisha probably checked off a good number of those. They controlled the weather. They raised people from the dead. Oil and flour came to widows because of them. But they didn't do it like Jesus. They prayed. They were led. They were told. Every time Jesus prays, he basically prays and he says, no, that's not for me. I want you to know that's just for you people who can hear me. Jesus does this on his own, of his own power, of his own volition. He so acts because he is no less than God on high. He is also the Christ, the Messiah. The whole point of John's gospel is to point you in this direction. These things are written, he says in John 20, 31, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The Messiah was no less than the King of God. John 18, 36, the entire crucifixion scene points to the fact that this Messiah was to be a king, but a king that was different and wholly different from the kings of the earth. Jesus answered, when Pilate asked him, are you a king? He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, just as we see people whose only kingdom is of the world fighting. Every inch of their kingdom they must keep, tooth, claw, and nail red. Jesus says, not my kingdom. That's not how my kingdom works. John 19, Pilate writes that fateful sign in Greek, in Aramaic, 
and in Latin, over the head of Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. An odd place for a coronation, but a coronation all the same. He is a king who does exactly what kings were supposed to do. He lives his life in obedience to God the Father. Whatever he sees the Father doing, he does. Where the Father tells him to go, he goes. The leading of the Father, he follows, even to his death. And that is why the cross is the greatest coronation for him, because he does the very thing that kings were supposed to do. They were to follow the will of God. They did not exist for people to serve them. They existed so that they could serve the people, to image God to the people of God. This is why Adam fails. This is why David and all of the other kings fail. They do not correctly image the work of God. They don't correctly image the person of God to the people of God. As you read through First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, the failure of the kings is the failure of the people. But unlike Adam, and unlike every other Israelite king, Jesus does this perfectly. He is the Messiah. Read through Deuteronomy 17. The king was first and foremost to be a keeper of the law. The king was first and foremost to be one who always does what is good and right and true, witnessing to the very nature of God. That is the precise thing that Jesus does, and the precise place where he does that best is on the cross. Jesus points this out for us even well before the cross in John chapter 12, verses 27 and 28. Now, he says, My soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a loud voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Jesus is the Messiah who dies for his people. Therefore, he is also our sacrifice. Many people would look at the Gospel of John and reading through it and say there's not a lot of sacrificial language going throughout John's Gospel. It might not be the largest theme in John's Gospel, but it is certainly present. John the Baptist, one of the first announcements made about Jesus in this book is John the Baptist screaming out to everyone who can hear in 129, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is clearly depicted as the Passover Lamb not only because the crucifixion and the resurrection happened during the Passover, but John makes the point of saying, hey, you know what? Not one of his bones was broken. That sounds a lot like Scripture. In the Old Testament, the thing that wasn't to have its bones broken was indeed the Passover lamb. Jesus dies for us. Jesus tells us that he was going to. In John 10, 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. In John 11, 51 and 52, that bad prophecy that Gamaliel had that he wanted to inspire the people around him to commit murder through, John says, actually, God wanted him to say that because it's true. Being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not just for the nation, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Jesus was a sacrifice for us. You miss the wrath of God because Jesus died. You are considered children of God because Jesus died. You get good things because Jesus dies. But you are not to think for a second that he is an unwilling sacrifice. He is also sovereign in all things. He is in complete control over his own fate. In John 10, 17 through 18, Jesus says, For this reason the Father loves me, 
because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my father. Therefore, in John 19, Pilate wants to claim that authority. Pilate looks at Jesus and says, will you not speak to me? Jesus being silent before him will not talk to him, will not answer his questions. Will you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus says to him, you would have no authority at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. He's saying, Pilate, you have no authority here at all. It's not under your authority to crucify me, and, and it's not under your authority to let me go. As a matter of fact, you're going to try to let me go, and you're going to be wholly unsuccessful because you aren't in any authority whatsoever. Jesus is in control. He's not just in control of his fate. Friend, good news, he is in control of your fate. Jesus says of his sheep, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. The Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. He is sovereign and in control. Not only does he not allow one of his sheep to be snatched out of his hand, he is very clear in the high priestly prayer that no one, he kept them perfectly into the end, including Peter who was tempted to fall. He kept him till the end. All of those disciples made it through by the will and the presence of Jesus Christ. Therefore, Jesus provides for our every need. What are the needs of humans? The most basic, elemental needs of human beings, what are they? It's not good for man to be alone. We need to be in community. You can live. Solitary confinement's a good way to drive one insane. But Jesus has provided community for us. John 17, 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given to me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Those people in the, in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, in perfect community with one another, now we have been invited into that perfect community, into perfect love with Father, Son, and Spirit through the work of Jesus Christ. He gives us the perfect community to be truly human in. What about light? We think that we can exist without light because we can make light whenever we want to. In the first century, light was necessary. Jesus gives us light in John eight twelve. Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Maybe you can live without community. Maybe you can live without light. But what about shelter? Open to the elements and open to dangers around you. Jesus says that he goes to prepare a place for us. In John 14, 2, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, there you may also be. But Jesus doesn't just take us so that we may be with him and that we may have a structure around us. That structure is to protect us from our enemies. Even as we spoke of just a second ago, in John 17, 12, Jesus says this to the Father, When I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given to me. I have guarded them, and not one of them was lost except the Son of Destruction so the scripture might be fulfilled. 
Jesus' own words are there to keep us close to him. In John 16, 1, he says, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. He protects you. He keeps you. But what's more, he is food to you. John 6, 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Not only does he provide community, not only does he provide shelter, but he also provides food for us. You might be able to live without those things for a while, but what about water? Yes, he is indeed. Water for us. Jesus said to the woman at the well, everyone who drinks of this water, this water from the well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give to him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. John seven thirty seven. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Indeed, out of Jesus' own heart flew rivers of water. He gives us food, water, protection, community, light. But he also provides for us the thing that we need more than anything else. He provides the very air we breathe. This one's a little bit trickier, but it's clear in Scripture. John 3, Jesus says, Unless you are born of the Spirit and water, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, for English speakers, that's lost on us, but that word spirit is the same word as wind, which is exactly why Jesus turns around and says, the wind blows, the spirit blows where it wishes, wind and spirit being the same. You hear it sound, but you do not know where it came from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the wind or born of the spirit, the same spirit that Jesus looks at his disciples on the last day that he is with them. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. He breathes on them just as God breathes on the clay and the very first time that life springs into that clay. Jesus provides the very air we breathe. He provides life for us which is perhaps the most enduring vision of John. Everywhere you look, eternal life abounds from Jesus. That eternal life springs from the fact that he is air, water, food, clothing, shelter, everything we need. He is life. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that if you believe, you will never perish, but have everlasting and eternal life. John 10, 28, I gave them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. The very last thing said in the gospel of John from or are about the resurrection appearances in John chapter 20, verse 31. These things are written so that you will believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Jesus is our peace he is our prosperity. He is our joy. He is our gladness. We have whatever it might be. Whatever it is we have, we have it in Christ. And we have it in abundance. John 10.10, 10, I came that they may have life and they may have it abundantly. We are about to stand and sing the song, All I Have is Christ. You hear those words and it's easy. It's easy to think that 
This is a, a sad song about the limited things that Christians have. We don't get the beautiful things of the world. We're, we're not going to pursue the beautiful things of the world. You can have all of those wonderful things, and you can even look longingly at them and say, all I, all I have is Christ, as though we're just sad little martyrs. But you and I both know that's not what the song means. All I have is Christ is not some sort of sad statement about the lack that we have. It is praise for the overabundance that we have. All I have in Christ is Christ is the same as saying all I have is everything. What do you need that he doesn't provide? What could you possibly ask for that hasn't already been given to you? What provision, what good, what joy, what promise that isn't in Jesus? Friends, let us rejoice. For Jesus has come to be our salvation. God has made himself known in the person of Jesus Christ. He has redeemed us. He has given us joy and prosperity and life and happiness. He has provided us with peace and comfort. He has overcome the evil of the world. Even when you know trouble in this world, you know that our Jesus will be good to bring us out of it. He has overcome your sin in the world. And what is best? He has given himself to us so that we might know the fullness that is in the glory of Jesus Christ our Lord, who is God eternal, light from light, very God of very God. To him be praise and honor and glory. Hallelujah. All we have is Christ. Let us pray. Father, we sing of the glory that you have displayed in Jesus Christ, your Son. We are dead without him. We are doomed to be sinners, wretched in our own evil desires, held by the sin and the devil, without light and hope in the world without him. But you, our God, came near to us. You took on our flesh that you might take on our sin. You loved us with an eternal and an everlasting love. We are incapable of paying you back for this. But we do give you thanks. And we do praise your glorious name. Not as a payment, not as anything but an acknowledgement of the one who has done such good things for us. Receive praise and glory and honor from those who worship in the spirit and truth this day. We pray this for our good and for your glory. Amen. If you would join with us in our hymn of response and sing, All I Have is Christ. <laughs>